0: Hi. Thanks for stopping by. My name is Josh. I am your friend, the pastor of Dharma punks New York. Welcome. The retreat August 31st to September 1st on ego transcendence. There'll be lots of uh, time set aside for meditation, yoga, hiking, Dharma talks, somatic experiencing, and connection with other practitioners. If you would like to support my work, the Venmo is NYC, And on the site, there are uh, PayPal buttons, and there's also a Patreon page for NYC as well. It is interesting that uh, when people ask me about what it is I do exactly, one of the elements of my work that they're always most surprised about. I must say that simply being a Buddhist pastor is unusual enough, but the fact also that I never charge for anything I do often raises eyebrows, and people seem kind of surprised by that. So tonight's talk is going to be about work and its uh, ramifications, especially when work is beneficial versus when work is not beneficial. And karma, I mean the long-term emotional ramifications of any action. So in any action, there are, of course, the immediate feelings that result. The Buddha noted that Uh, people who are spiritually sophisticated or are spiritually growing or are in any way leading skillful lives consider the long-term ramifications of their actions, not the short-term. Many activities produce wonderful short-term benefits in terms of uh, mood lifts, but in the long-term make our lives worse, whereas many uh, activities in the short-term Are not that fun, but in the long term are beneficial. I don't particularly like uh, going to the dentist's office all the time, but it's been proven to be in my long-term benefit, Uh, as well as I every day go to the gym and I go on the treadmill and try to jog a mile and a half, which is just for me a deeply unpleasant 20 minutes, and yet uh, hopefully it's going to produce long-term benefits to my cognitive function and physiological health. So work can have long-term benefits or long-term deficits to our well-being. Countless studies show that there is direct associations between an enriching life purpose, emotional and physical health protection, as well as longevity when people have work that they feel is beneficial. An 80-year-old Harvard study of adult development showed that uh, in addition to physical health, a fulfilled life in the long-term is not only the quality of our relationships, but also engaging in activities that help others. Uh, Ed Diner and Martin Seligman, the positive psychology, the happiest ten percent of people are the ones that engage regularly in positive social activities, and this, of course, makes sense. We are a tribal species. Uh, we survive due to mutuality and positive uh, affiliations, where we would look after each other, and those who would. Be reliable in helping out members of the clan would be those who would be most likely to uh, stay in the clan, pass on their genes. So, over the course of millions of years of evolution, our brains developed and dorsal anterior cingulate cortex and other regions that reward us for, po- for positive social actions. It increases serotonin production, dopamine secretion, and empathetic interactions are also notoriously connected with oxytocin, which protects against pain. And all these neurotransmitters are natural antidepressants, anxiolytics, which means they reduce anxiety, and they are mood-stabilizing and result, therefore, in greater calm and focus beneath the level of awareness, neurocepting other people's gazes towards us. And when people express gratitude, appreciation for our work, it changes our nervous system to the beneficial state of social engage. And if you want to read an entire book on it, uh, Matthew Lieberman's wonderful book social he's a cognitive neuroscientist as well as another cognitive neuroscientist uh Naomi Eisenberger and the great John Cacioppo the founder of social neuroscience and Don- Dan Siegel all of the giants uh show direct benefits uh accrued from positive beneficial interactions uh with each other and this is why in the Dharma, right livelihood is a factor of the Eightfold Path. Unfortunately, it's a factor that's very often not spoken about in many uh, sanghas. I think sometimes, maybe cynically, I suspect that it's because, uh, as you'll see, so few of us fully pursue beneficial work, and Buddhist teachers like to avoid the subject. Frankly, the Buddha, when it came to Right Livelihood, set a very low bar. He said, avoid work that involves in weapons, enslaving human beings, killing animals, intoxicants, and poisons. So most of us, I think, don't, hopefully, aren't engaged in those activities But in the lay person's suttas as well, um, he talks about how important it is to reflect on whether or not our work is beneficial for others, as well as if it allows time for other spiritual pursuits. And one of the factors listed, listed as a requisite for spiritual growth is kaga, which is generosity or using one's time altruistically. It's associated with doing charitable work. So, uh, and working only for the benefit of oneself on the other hand is makaria, which means in Pali, which means stinginess and it's said to produce uh, terrible uh, karma. So, this is to say that even if we find ourselves in jobs where we have to generate a lot of income, there are many ways to volunteer, even if we work at home. And um, I'm, I'll, if I can get around to it, I'll post some of the links, but a simple Google search. If you, have, if you work from home or in an office where people are not looking over your shoulder and you're like most... People where there is long periods of downtime, then followed by frantic work, followed by long periods of downtime. There's ways to turn that time into altruistic endeavors. Now, the bulk of human evolution, hunting and gathering, wasn't just for oneself, but it was shared for the survival of the clan. And it was our major accomplishment in surviving threatening environments. It provided us with the entirety of our purpose. 4,500, I don't know, 5,000 years ago, the Sumerians developed uh, an organizing spiritual endeavor for for men and women, which was serving the gods through work, uh, which resulted in staggering creations like pyramids and so forth. Um, You'd like to read, well, I'll talk about that book in a second. Um, And since then, religious devotion has often involved um, rejecting mundane economic pursuits And doing work for the benefit of one's spiritual fulfillment. Note the great Vanitas paintings of the Dutch and I believe the uh, 16th century, which are these wonderful works reminding people of our mortality. And the point of them was to get us to reflect on how to beneficially use our time, not just for economic uh uh well-being work was for most of um the last uh several uh 5000 years a kind of spiritual calling it created a feeling of purpose max weber the great sociologist wrote a lot about uh the idea of how up until the 20th century work was a calling and endowed us with a deep sense of belongingness and a higher sense of emotional well-being. But then the atrocities of the late 19th century and the 20th century, which led to, you know, two world wars, um, as well as um uh, numerous atrocities led to a disillusionment with any form of spiritual callings. And as well as the um, influx or spread of capitalism across the globe, which was imported to colonies and to uh across seas to distant lands, uh emptied work of its spiritual purpose oh and it became simply a way that we survive as autonomous individuals in a state where, on the one hand, um, there are tons, capitalism provides tons and tons of uh, addictive rewards, you know, uh, for the excessive labor that people are engaged in. Instead of reaping the rewards of Labor in the sense of a spiritual being, it became something that people uh just did as a way to uh survive and then accumulate resources and addictive uh, uh, products. An outcome of capitalism is the most important beneficial jobs are uh, almost invariably the most poorly remunerated teachers, nurses, firemen, all pairs, farmers, cooks, supermarket staff, elder care workers. Uh, If these jobs disappeared, vanished, we would suffer just horrific societal consequences. Uh, And yeah, these jobs pay a fraction of the salary of a corporate lawyer or a financial analyst, and I frankly call me uh, a staunch, anti-capitalist. I won't blush, but I don't think that financial analysts or corporate lawyers bring uh, even a fraction of a value that a um, a nurse or a teacher or Uh, uh, someone who risks their life running into fires to try to rescue people or a farmer uh, does. So, um, but yet many of us due to financial obligations of family, the high cost of living, student debt, must seek work that pays higher um, and then beneficial work does and uh this brings us to the wonderful anthropologist David Graeber a hero of mine wrote the wonderful books debt and the dawn of everything and uh while those are rather lengthy and brilliant uh academic studies of anthropology David Graeber wrote the wonderful book that anyone can read and enjoy bullshit jobs and uh, bullshit jobs is an anthropology of work. And he noted that today, there is a, a tsunami of work that is so useless and so unnecessary that even the employees cannot justify their own jobs existence. In fact, in surveys, Four out of every 10 workers in many countries found their own jobs to be absolutely useless without any benefit to anyone. Uh, Graeber noted a bullshit job is work that no one's life would be remarkably worse off if the job disappeared obviously except for the person who does the job <laughs> but if no one else besides the person who does the job or some company's life would be made worse then um, it's a bullshit job the he noted that very often the work is so useless and unnecessary yet employees even though they acknowledge that their work is profoundly Uh, uh, without any altruistic result must act as if their work is important simply to maintain some degree of self-worth. But that self-worth, he notes, is only short-term, we call it short-term karma, but in the long term, it has negative results. In fact, um, in his work in the book if you ever if you don't want to read it i'll just summarize some of the gist of it which is over the last century while production jobs you know worked like farmers and uh handymen and um plumbers or just people who worked with their hands and actually produced things or people that actually uh Create did roles uh, that helped others directly have in, been increasingly automated away, but rather than resulting in a reduction of working hours that would free us to pursue whatever we want, you know, hopefully some altruistic projects mixed with travel or creative ideas. I don't know why I'm doing jazz hands while I'm saying this, uh, but anyway, um, the number of uh, in his notes, the number of professional, managerial, clerical sales and service workers tripled, and it went in a hundred years from one quarter twenty five percent to seventy five percent of all employment so let's let's review in the course of a hundred years while production and work with one's hands you know vanished or not vanished, but significantly decreased. Instead of freeing up anybody's time, here goes the jazz hands again, it led to an absolute uh, tidal wave of professional managerial clerical sales service workers and so forth. He notes that entirely new industries sprung up like financial services and telemarketing and corporate law and public relations
1: all of which bring um, uh, a minimal
0: amount of real benefit to the well being of others. Greg noted that these jobs, while benefiting a few, are often more exhausting or just as time consuming as the jobs in production that they replaced. And so we now have a professional class of people who cram um, in their dwindling free time Netflix, binges, online purchases, takeout meals, yoga classes. I'm making this up as I go along. He didn't actually list those, but you get the idea that these are the ways that we uh, consume our free time after the exhaustion of work. That very often doesn't pay off with emotional well-being and a sense of, of being a positive a social member of the world. Uh, Graber noted that this cycle creates profound psychological violence and scars one's soul. And this was what happened to me after 9 11. I was working in advertising, I was volunteering, doing uh after school performing in after school for kids, and uh, I taught meditation for people on parole from Rikers and um, oh was one one more thing. Um, But anyway, um, I was still working the bulk of my life in advertising. And after 9-11, I went to volunteer to try to do something to be of help. And when they found out that I was an art director, they basically said, well, we don't really have any need for art directors. And it felt like a kick directly to my gut. And It was shortly thereafter that I went into a meeting at the advertising agency where I worked, and and, uh, I was put into this pitch, and the pitch was for a migraine medication, and I asked the one question that you're never supposed to ask in an advertising, you know, a meeting where you're talking about promoting a product, which was, does this actually work? and everybody around the room looked like i had farted aloud because uh, that's the question you're not supposed to ask and so finally the um not the project manager but the client uh the associate client director or whatever i can't remember what her title was she looked through some paper and she said well yeah placebo only works 6% but this works 12% of the time so it's twice as effective as placebo and i said okay So what you're telling me is that one out of 10 people, this helps. But what out of the other nine out of 10 people? And she said, well, doesn't really have any effect for them. So I'm like, here we are advertising this extremely expensive medication you have to take every day for migraines that nine out of 10 times is not really going to lead to any benefit. And meanwhile, we're sitting here in an advertising meeting while You know, tons and tons of people are emotionally scarred with PTSD. I was not in great shape myself after 9-11. So uh, that's why I essentially reached the conclusion that I had to leave. (laughs) And um, it was not long after that that I became empowered to teach in 2005, and that eventually led me down the road to being a complete Buddhist pastor. Now, uh, I'll just list a few of them. Uh, Graeber lists about five different kinds of jobs he says that people should review if they have, um, because he believes that they don't accrue any emotional uh, benefits or reaps any altruistic outcomes. The first he calls taskmasters, which are consultants and middle management that assign useless tasks to others as a way to fulfill or exert power. And if you'd like to read about this, you can look at any of the anthropological works of Michel Foucault, the great French theorist who wrote entire books about how so much of clerical and capitalist work is just assigning work to document that we're actually doing work (laughs) and also to just write endless uh, reports about the progress of work as well as document that the organization is um, uh, doing anything. There are flunkies who are individuals whose work makes their superiors feel important These are personal assistants who validate their manager's power, and they do that in ways that makes the manager feel more important so that the manager doesn't have to enter their own appointments into their own Google calendars, or they don't actually have to answer emails. They have somebody else to do it for them. Why this is at all uh, makes someone feel good? I have no idea. But Freeing up this free time allows managers to engage in a wide range of invasive activities that exert even more control over the few people whose work actually produces anything. There are duct tapers who solve problems created by poorly designed services and products such as Customer service people who are hard workers, but whose jobs require them to deliver apologies for companies who've created shoddy projects or products that are not delivered on time. And then there's, of course, so many people I know are software engineers whose work involves simply creating little snippets of code to fix outdated bad code that was created that no longer works. There are what he calls uh, goons. It's a terrible term, but goons uh, in Graber's world are jobs that exist only because they are in other firms or other countries. So, so many police, army, army marketing professionals, public relations, um, All of these are people that very often are hired simply because companies or countries or states feel that if we don't have them, other states or companies have them. Therefore, we must have them because that's what people that's what you're supposed to do. Um, There's clear evidence that work in uh putting aside Graeber's work, there's clear evidence that those who do work in altruistic fields such as healthcare or therapy can still experience moral wounds and moral injury if their work involves withholding services based on income. And that's why everything I do has always been by donation only with no expectation, because I'm have seen um and talked to many many colleagues who work in therapy and um other uh social workers whose uh work uh, results in them having to turn away people who can't pay for it and um I don't know how anybody could feel good about that. I really don't. To me, it's just the idea of being doing what I do, which is counseling and turning anyone away due to income to me is morally abhorrent and completely undermines the value of the work I would do. So I have made it a point never to do that. And during the pandemic, my work became full up with uh individuals who lost the ability due to, to lost work um, to pay for their therapists and so and were suffering during the pandemic, so I took them on in fact, much of my work has been for with people who just can't afford any kind of therapeutic support um, and while I'm not saying that therapists should work for free, but I'm saying if anybody does work in a beneficial realm, we should make it a point to try to uh, make our work and our services available w- uh, when, in any way possible to make it available to those who normally couldn't afford to pay for it. Uh, there is lots of clinical research about burnout amongst primary health care professionals in areas where, uh, of low income uh, amongst healthcare professionals, burnout is associated with poor availability of services and the fact that you know healthcare workers have to watch as people who could have had meaningful interventions fall through the cracks and cannot be um, have illnesses and me- especially mental illness addressed. There's a, a paper I read called "The Morally Distressing Morally Distressing Experiences, Moral Injury, and Burnout in Florida Healthcare Providers." No, it's not because they work under DeSantis. It was during the time of the pandemic, and it the paper was all about how just being unable to care for so many people who were either um, uh, beyond uh help with um coronavirus or uh for some reason were unable to be provided care and it this just being present and seeing people not being able to be helped Resulted in lasting psychological, spiritual, and had a behavioral impact, including emotional distress, weakened trust with coworkers, despair, and even suicidality. Um, there's been a soaring rates of suicide in healthcare workers for those who saw patients who couldn't who couldn't have services provided. So. Providing, not engaging in positive endeavors lowers serotonin. It doesn't help with the secretion of oxytocin or dopamine. Uh, And it's been associated with what's called languishing, which uh, the uh, psychologist, I think, uh, Corey Keyes notes from his research is a predictor of Future risk of mental illness. So um, we're likely to experience or become subject to major depression or anxiety disorders. The if we don't in some way engage in behaviors that is towards the benefit of others. Now, finally, before I uh, go to our meditation. Um, I'd like to finally conclude with a note about repetition compulsion, which is that um, many of us wind up in work, which unfortunately, uh, due to early childhood uh, attachment wounds, puts us in situations that exacerbate the uh, adverse childhood experiences and the maladaptive coping strategies we developed in childhood, you see the unconscious feelings and behaviors that govern how we act with each other are wired very early. Some uh, argue in attachment field, people like Alan Shore and Mary Main and um oh uh Omri giliath and so forth argue the first few years of life before the development of narrative memory. we learn how to connect with people and what behaviors uh are rewarded with positive attention versus which behaviors are lead us to being neglected or to even being punished. And these implicit learnings are very, very difficult to change. And they result in lasting proclivities or tendencies that are known in attachment as internal working models. Repetition compulsion is the known uh, almost universal tendency to repeat the emotional dynamics of our family systems in our adult life. And it happens most frequently in relationships and in work, the kind of work we choose. Uh, Why do people wind up in traumatic or stressful or very, very uh, harmful, competitive, unrewarding environments is... Because very often the same competitive dynamics or the same dynamics where you had to work hard for any degree of attention were present in one's early family system. In childhood, we couldn't quit our families. We had to stay in relationships and make them work no matter what. And so by the time we're adults, if we grew up in, uh, Uh, family systems that were not secure in their attachment dynamics, then all of the strategies, the denial, the fawning, the the going overboard to placate, the caregiving, excessive caregiving, not healthy caregiving, uh, will be repeated very often in our work life. It's very clear that individuals who experience secure attachments, which meant reliable attention and availability and um, soothing and express delight, are likely to be confident and seek fulfilling work that's both creative and beneficial That are that where their work feels more purposeful. And they're not the ones who prioritize remunerative work um, And they have a real sense that they belong to a world where others will take care of them, which allows them to engage in work that's less financially remunerative, but more rewarding. Anxious individuals are those who experienced unreliable, unpredictable attention, appreciation, care, and they became more and more hypervigilant about making sure that and fixating on one person and making sure, monitoring that other person's emotional states. And these are individuals who very often uh, have core shame and imposter syndrome. Uh, They work very hard and creatively, but for one other person, for another person, they very often wind up in work where their roles and their creativity, although, absolutely vital, receive very little recognition, and they don't pursue their own creative fulfillment. And while they can be extremely fixated on making sure and focusing on one, their supervisor, very often they can be very anxious around their coworkers. On the other hand, there is also emotionally avoidant individuals who throughout childhood learned to distance themselves from others and to find endeavors that were isolating and self-stimulating and so these are individuals who struggle to find cooperative roles and they very often seek high remunerative positions or positions where they can exert control over to others but very often because of their diminished uh, emotional connection with others don't um, seek the rewards of compassionate, beneficial work. Well, you know what? I could go on, but I'm not going to, because that's a lot of information. I hope that some of that was worth reflecting on. And what I'm going to do now is lead a meditation and almost all the meditations that I do have some guided element that reflects the, uh, the um, content of the talk. So I'll try to work a little of that in. But um, most of this is just going to be about cultivating uh, ease and tranquility. So thanks for listening and find a really comfortable seated position that makes you feel good in your body but doesn't uh make you want to fall asleep immediately so see if you can find that that perfect spot where you're really comfortable but not so comfortable to the extent you're gonna just uh, uh zone out into unconsciousness I have a chair in my living room that's perfect for it. The the angle is just above the angle where I can fall asleep, but it's really super comfortable. So I do a lot of my meditation not in that strict upright position that we see in so many Buddhist imagery and also what's taught. So often I do my meditation in a very comfortable chair. And uh, you can, too, if you want.
1: So closing the eyes and allowing your attention to return from its voyage around the outside world, the stimuli
0: of Visual and auditory stimuli around you and bring your attention inwards to feelings. Feelings are what really matters. It's the great Antonio Damasio, greatest living neuroscientist, says that being aware of feelings is the
1: foundation for being conscious. foundation for what allows minds to exist and to develop. So find your breath, if you'd like. And by which I mean, where are the sensations in your body that let you know whether you're breathing in or breathing out, and simply try it first just to in the Buddha's instructions in the
0: mindfulness of breathing, just first know if you're breathing in, know if you're breathing
1: out, and see if you can breathe in a way that feels good in your body.
0: If you're really tired and sluggish, that might mean full in-breaths,
1: really drinking in the air. On the other hand, if you've been feeling anxious,
0: the thoughts are racing, difficult to settle down, then really focus on extending the length of the out-breath. So if you can count to four on your in-breath,
1: see if you can even count to a higher number on your out-breath. You can find the breath anywhere you want, the nose or the belly or the chest or... The mouth or... So all we need to know... At the beginning is, am I
0: breathing in or am I breathing out? And how can I use my breath to really make my body feel comfortable? And another way you can do this beyond changing the length of the in-breath or out-breath is also wherever you find... uh, any sensations that are tight or uncomfortable
1: in your body, maybe in your back or shoulders or neck. Just imagine with the out-breath, you can relax all the muscles
0: and let them release. Breathing into the area, and then with the out-breath, releasing... Attention, so you
1: can use your breath as a kind of compassionate, caring event, kind of inner soothing and caring attention
0: that's unconditionally appreciative. So as you breathe in and breathe out, trying to cultivate a rhythm that feels good for your body, also use your
1: attentional spotlight if you'd like to just look for any areas you can release. So, the second set of instructions in the basic teaching of mindfulness of breath is simply to use your breathing to make you, in general, feel feelings of comfort, which is not just in general the body, but also that feeling of being at ease, relaxed. Feelings are both physical sensations
0: like the stomach relaxing, shoulders releasing,
1: the muscles in the face. Skin releasing its tension. Sometimes even a change of expression on the face. But there's also a component that's just feeling safe and at home and relaxed and comfortable in any environment. So see if beyond having the breath feel good in the body, see if you can use your breath to then cultivate a state of overall ease, And if your mind wanders away, that's okay.
0: Just promise whatever is, whatever thought is
1: calling out to you, promising whatever it's offering, just you can reassure the thought that you'll
0: return to it, especially if it's important. You can even make a note. But then come back just to trying to breathe in a way
1: that just creates an overall sense of comfort. The following instructions essentially is
0: using the breath to make your mind feel brighter,
1: more spacious, more open, instead of an enclosed, small, limited sense of being
0: locked into a tiny head. See if you could expand
1: your awareness. Making it luminous is the word very often used. Bright. Like a bright sky where anything can pass through.
0: Even negative thoughts or memories or
1: negative feelings, they can pass through, but nothing can stick. Because we're not adding any thoughts or resistance. It's just a bright, open-knowing awareness. So we were going to continue with the mindfulness of breathing. The
0: last step would be to use the breath as a way to observe calmly all of the different states of the mind, all the different sensations of the surrounding world arising and passing without needing to react in any way. So using the breath as a stable foundation for mindfulness.
1: And you can continue towards that if you like. Um, But if you'd like to end the meditation
0: as well with a reflection that ties in to tonight's talk there's a practice called kaganusati reflections of one's beneficial generous endeavors as well as the endeavors of others and
1: so you could bring to mind some endeavor that you either do pursue
0: that's based on kindness and care for others or some endeavor you'd like to
1: pursue but haven't had the time as of yet, to simply, if you can, visualize those that would be helped by this endeavor. You could visualize
0: either people you know or individuals entirely conjured from your imagination, but expressing through their gaze, their facial expressions, recognition for this work, as a way to remind us of the very real
1: emotional benefits we'd accrue from any kind of charitable engagement with the world. If nothing comes to mind, you can visualize someone whose work has in some way inspired a sense of uh, respect for their generosity,
0: their compassion, their empathy, someone who you've met, someone
1: who embodies kaga, altruism, care, and just see how that makes you feel about this person as a way of reminding us again of how taking the time to give back to the world, earn such warm regards and bonds with others. So at this point, I'd like to bring the meditation to a close.